Hello, and uh, welcome to this UCL lunch hour lecture um, on the crisis of British benefit policy, how we got here. Um, my name is Julia de Romemont, and I'm a lecturer in quantitative research methods and political science at uh, the UCL Department of Political Science, and I will be chairing today's lecture. It is my honor and pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Tom O'Grady. Tom O'Grady is an associate professor of political science um, and of quantitative political science at um, University College London. His research focuses on how politicians and the public think and talk about welfare systems and redistribution. He combines a wide array of advanced social data science methods using computational techniques applied to so-called big data, so large collections of public opinion responses, political speeches, and media articles, to show how political discourse and public opinion evolve over long periods of time and influence each other. He has published research in many renowned academic journals and is also the author of a book, The Transformation of British Welfare Policy, Politics, Discourse and Public Opinion, which uh, was published last year by Oxford University Press. Before I hand over to Tom, um, I want to let you know that we will have some time at the end of the lecture for questions and that these can be submitted at any point during Tom's talk uh, by going to slide.do, so slide do, um, that you can enter in your internet browser and then uh, enter the event code hashtag British benefits. I will now hand over to Tom for his talk. Tom, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much, Julia, for that very nice introduction. And thank you to the UCL team for organizing the event. And thank you to all of you for being here. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Uh, I'm gonna share my screen now to bring up my slides. Okay, so today's talk, as Julia um, suggested, is based largely on a book that I published last year, and this is the cover of the book here, the title, The Transformation of British Welfare Policy, Politics, Discourse, and Public Opinion. And the, the cover of the book is quite appropriate, really, because it shows one of the key developments in British welfare policy that has happened over the last um, decade or so. And that is the rise of food banks uh, shown here on the front cover as an alternative to the welfare system for those who are left unable to feed themselves. And um, part of the story of today's lecture is gonna be a story of what has happened to benefits. So what has happened to lead us to this place where many people are reliant on food banks in order to eat. But the crucial part of the book and the crucial story that I want to focus on today is the story of why this has happened. And um, it's only by understanding why these changes have happened that we can answer the next question and the question that I'm gonna to finish today's lecture with, which is what lessons can we learn from what's happened to British benefits policy over the last decade or so? And what can and should and does the future hold for welfare policy going forward? And the central argument of the book is kind of spelled out a little bit in the subtitle of the book, which talks about politics, discourse and public opinion. And ultimately, the why question, the question of why these changes to the benefit system have happened is a question of politics. It's a question about the decisions that politicians have taken. It's a question about the motives, the incentives, the beliefs, the ideas that politicians hold. But it's also about what politicians have said, and that's their discourse. And my analysis and discussion of what politicians have said is a crucial part of the book's argument that I'll come on to later on um, this lunchtime. And the third and really crucial part of the book 
is the study of public opinion, the study of how people think about benefits, and most importantly, the study of how what they think about benefits is affected by what politicians say about the system and what the media says about the system. So the message of the book is that these three things, politics, discourse, and public opinion, are linked to each other and all need to be understood if we're going to answer that crucial why question of why these welfare changes have happened. And uh, you may more notice if you've been following the news that this talk is actually very topical because Jeremy Hunt in yesterday's Conservative Party conference speech actually introduced or, or, or sort of highlighted some new welfare reforms that are potentially going to take place very soon. Uh, and so I'll talk a little bit about the current context uh, and perhaps even about those conservative changes uh, later on, either in the talk or in the Q&A. So let's start then by talking about what has happened to the British benefits system. And part of the argument of the book is that we should think about what's happened to the British benefits system over the last decade as an unprecedented set of policy changes. And in my view, as one of the great mistakes, blunders in British policymaking history. Uh, and I'm gonna talk in the next couple of slides about why I think things have gone wrong and what I think has gone wrong. But let's first of all talk about what the actual changes have been to British welfare policy. And the first question I need to answer is, well, what do I mean by welfare? And in this book and in this talk, when I say welfare, I'm using it in kind of the American way of talking, which denotes a set of policies that are about help for unemployment, um, for disability, uh, for ill health and to alleviate poverty. So I'm not in this book or in this talk talking about wider parts of the welfare system like um, the NHS or social housing. I'm concentrating on the benefits system uh, and particularly unemployment, disability and poverty relief. What's happened to that system since 2010? Many of you probably know the story, but, but let me recap. It's been called by these three authors in 2014, a thoroughgoing restructuring of the British welfare state towards a highly inegalitarian form of liberalism. One of the most important changes that took place actually in the early 2010s, this is after the arrival of a Conservative-led coalition government in 2010, following a long period of Labour governments. The first thing they did was to freeze benefits in nominal terms. In other words, their cash value was frozen, which doesn't sound like it did a lot, but actually was one of the most important and far-reaching cuts to um, benefits that took place over that period and very largely reduced the generosity of benefits to historically unprecedented levels. Um, there was a, a cap placed on the amount of benefits that households can receive and also a cap on the number of children, the so-called um, two-child limit that families are eligible to receive help for. Housing benefits have been cut and in particular they've actually been delinked largely from rental costs uh, and one of the results of that is that um, rental housing uh, has become essentially unaffordable for most people who now rely on housing benefits because it no longer in most areas of the country covers the minimal cost of, of renting. Alongside these cuts in generosity, there's been a big rise in monitoring and sanctioning of people in the benefits system. That means that people's behavior while they're on benefits is being monitored more carefully. The receipt of benefits is being made more conditional on behaving in what the government thinks of as the correct way while on benefits. And for those that fail to adhere to the standards or the requirements of them, um, there's a, a, a sort of renewed and strengthened system of sanctioning, which means that people can have their benefits cut or even removed for large periods of time. And the longest period for which people can have their benefits removed is actually up to six months 
which means that people are left with literally nothing to live on for, for six months. And one of the key things that's happened since 2010 is the extension of that system, which to some extent already existed for unemployed people to um, disabled claimants, people claiming incapacity benefits and its uh, successors. All of these changes have been rolled more recently into the so-called system of universal credit, which is uh, a wide-reaching reform of the welfare system that aims to combine all previous benefits like um, disability benefits or housing benefits into one single payment and also to incorporate the previous system of tax credits or um, sort of payments to those in low pay into the system as well. And there's been a, a process of so-called managed migration over the last few years of benefit claimants onto that system. New, new claimants have been going onto it for a while. And at this point, the large majority of people in the benefit system are now integrated into the universal credit system. It was a system that was originally intended to be a bit more generous than the system that came before it, but it's ended up for various reasons that I'll come on to later on in the talk, actually being considerably less generous than was intended or than its predecessors. And in my final bullet point, one of the most notorious features of universal credits uh, and of reforms since 2010 is the so-called five-week wait for payments, which means that if you become unemployed in the UK now for the first time, you actually have to wait five weeks until you receive your first payment for unemployment benefits. Uh, a large number of claimants in that period become completely destitute. Um, they're reliant on food banks to eat and survive. Most of them have no savings to rely on. And in fact, many of them actually end up going into debt to the government. They are allowed to borrow from their future universal credit payments. And so five weeks later, when they begin the payments, they're actually already in debt to the government uh, and are receiving lower payments than they should be under universal credit. Um, so these are the main features of the system. Now let's talk about what's actually happened. And I'm going to show you a chart from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, uh, which is a, a think tank that examines public spending and taxation. And the book actually stops its analysis in 2020, and as does this chart. And since 2020, not a great deal has happened to the welfare system. There was a temporary boost to universal credit during the pandemic um, that was then reversed. So the um, findings on this slide, although they stop in 2020, apply to today. What this shows you on the um, x-axis are income deciles. So one here means the bottom 10% of earners, 10 means the highest 10% of earners. And the y-axis shows you the percent of net income that each of these groups has lost as a result of tax and benefit changes since 2010. And I think it's worth um, pausing to reflect on the extraordinariness of this chart. What this shows, first of all, is that losses have been very, very high for low earners. People have lost 20% of their net income at the low end of the scale. These are the kinds of changes that are more commonly associated with something like wars or, or natural disasters. The second thing to um, mention is the deeply regressive nature of these changes. Although at the very top of the income distribution, there's been a slight reduction for the very highest earners, the pattern that really stands out here is that middle earners to high earners have been largely protected whereas the impact of these changes has fallen uh, very, very strongly on the poorest claimants. And this line shows you what's happened to um, working age families with children on average. This is what's happened to working age families without children. Um, so these changes have actually hit families with children uh, much harder than the childless. And finally, let's see what's happened to pensioners over the same um, period. And you can see that across the income distribution, the income of pensioners has been essentially very carefully protected over the period uh, via various mechanisms, including the so-called triple lock on pensions income. 
So this is a highly regressive set of changes, a far-reaching set of changes, and one that's led to very, very large increases in child poverty, in homelessness, in indebtedness, in mental health crises, uh, and even in suicides. And these are not um, kind of idle academic claims or, 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 or campaigning claims. These are now backed up by serious academic evidence using the rollout of universal credit to show um, actually the causal impact of those reforms on um, various of the things that I just talked about. So there's now a very strong evidence base that the um, sort of regressive changes shown on this chart have fed through into a series of um, very, very difficult societal outcomes such as homelessness, uh, extreme poverty, hunger, um, mental health crises, and so on. Just to get a sense of what's happened to British policy compared to other countries, I'm now going to show you one more chart uh, on the what story before we move on to the why story. And let me just talk you through what this chart um, shows you. This shows you um, a, a measure from the OECD of how strict those sanctioning and monitoring regimes are across countries. The green dots show you um, strictness as it was in 2011, um, preceding most of the changes. And the blue dots show you what they were like in 2020. Higher values here mean stricter uh, in terms of the uh, sanctioning system. And uh, you can see that by 2020, uh, the UK was pretty much the strictest country in Europe in terms of how it monitors and sanctions claimants. Um, but that wasn't necessarily true back in 2011, where it was more in the middle of the pack, and in fact, quite similar to countries like Sweden. Uh, the second thing to notice here is that the UK is um, more or less the only country, there's a couple of exceptions, but more or less the only country where that strictness and, uh, strictness and monitoring has increased a lot over this period. What this means is that the post-2010 period is partly a story of British exceptionalism. It's about British benefits policy changing in ways that it has not changed in other similar countries around the world. And so that why story of why this has happened has to account for why the UK has diverged from the patterns that exist in other European and OECD countries. And these sanctioning and monitoring regimes, by the way, uh, have been shown again using very clear academic evidence to contribute to a very stressful experience for claimants in the UK who have to jump through a lot of hoops now to claim benefits. In fact, being on benefits is almost a full-time job at this point. They have to keep applying for jobs. They're very carefully monitored by so-called work coaches. Um, and the sanctioning regime, which is a regime that jumps in if you fail to meet those conditions, has been shown to lead to extreme poverty, but also to be um, a system that is uh, much more used by people with, for example, English as a second language, with learning difficulties, with low literacy, and with mental health problems, who find it difficult to navigate the kind of Byzantine system of uh, uh, welfare requirements that are placed on them by the system. And those of you who've seen the film, I, Daniel Blake, which actually is a very realistic portrayal of what happens, um, may have some idea of what that looks like. Okay, so I, I, I've concluded the first part of the talk, which is about what has happened to benefit policy. I've made the claim that what's happened since 2010 is unprecedented historically or comparatively, and that it's had very far-reaching effects on the poorest citizens in Britain. What I want to focus on now is the why question of why that's happened, and to use that to uh, help 
understand what we can do or what might happen to benefits policy in the future. And the crucial message of this talk and of the book is that that why question is a political question, which is why I, a political scientist, am studying benefits policy. We need to understand why politicians made the decisions they did and what we can learn from those. And so this is not just a story of economic necessity. It's not just a story of reacting to changes in labor markets. It's not just a story of austerity. It's not just a story of the tax system, et cetera, et cetera. It's a story of political agency and of political decisions. And so we're going to be talking about that today. Before I move on to my own um, sort of uh, explanation for what's happened, I want to briefly highlight three other explanations that I talk about in the book and that I think are inadequate to explain what's happened. But these are explanations that may leap to mind for some of you immediately. So one is what I've kind of previewed, and this is the idea that the changes since 2010 were either inevitable or necessary in order to reform the benefits system, which is certainly the argument that's put forward by conservative-led reformers. To my mind, this is not convincing for a few reasons. One is that the welfare system had already been very extensively reformed by 2010, and it had, been, it had been reformed in ways that were very similar to other European countries like Germany through its um, hearts reforms system. And the second is that the uh, academic evidence on sanctioning and monitoring and conditionality and benefits cuts very clearly now shows that those at best do very little to nothing to encourage behavior change in claimants and at worst may well be counterproductive in terms of getting people into better paid jobs. And what the UK actually does rather poorly compared to other countries is to use so-called active labor market policies, which are policies that support people to get employment through coaching, through training, and through um, forms of support, but enable people to move into jobs. What the UK does is monitor and sanction, but doesn't provide much support. And so when we start to look comparatively, we can see that there's nothing inevitable about the UK's changes. These are a, a fairly unique set of changes that, that don't really have parallels in other countries, at least over the last few years. The second explanation is, well, you might say, well, this is just what conservative governments always do. The only thing we need to explain here is the fact that the conservative government won the 2010 election and then proceeded to do what conservatives always do, which is to cut benefits and to shrink the size of state. And I think that this is also an inadequate explanation for a couple of reasons. One is that I think the Thatcher government, the previous conservative government back in the 1980s, is actually somewhat misunderstood in terms of its benefit changes. If you go back and look at what happened in the 80s, the Thatcher government did cut things like unemployment benefits, but that was massively cushioned by um, things like housing benefits that were introduced at the same time. And actually, the historian Peter Sloman has argued that we can think of Thatcherism as the rise of the so-called transfer state, where actually very large amounts of new transfers were created that did blunt the impact of Thatcher's reforms on the very poorest. And I think that the story of 2010 onwards is a story of the removal of a taboo on hurting the very poorest in society through welfare reforms, a taboo that did actually exist even under Thatcher. And one way we know this is that the um, social policy scholar Chris Grover at the University of Lancaster has gone back to the archives and shown that in the early 1980s, the Conservatives actually considered introducing a benefits cap that's very similar to the benefits cap that came in after 2010, but decided against it because they thought it would be too damaging and would create too much poverty. So there's a very clear example of Conservative politicians at two different times actually behaving very differently and not behaving the same. So there is something qualitatively and quantitatively different about the way that Conservative politicians behaved post-2010. 
The third possibility, and one that people often raise with me, is, well, maybe this was a so-called thermostatic response. And let me explain what this means. This is a, a kind of a core idea from political science, which says the following. It says that the public have a kind of preferred general level of spending on a given policy area. They have a rough idea of how much they want to spend on the benefits system. When public spending goes above that level, the, the public will want it to be cut. And when public spending goes below that level, the public will want it to be raised. And what, they what it tends to do is over the long run, create a kind of equilibrium or long run uh, general level of spending on a given area so that the public acts like a thermostat in a house when the temperature goes up the thermostat will come on when the temperature goes down, it will come on and so on to regulate the house's temperature so the public acts like a thermostat. And what um, did happen under New Labour was an increase in public spending. Uh, but crucially for my argument, uh, what Labour didn't do was increase the generosity of the benefit system. What they in fact did was increase conditionality, was increase sanctioning, was widen the scope of reforms from the unemployed to um, the disabled and so on. And so this is not for me a story of the public reacting against an overly generous new labor welfare settlement. It's actually a story of a ratcheting up of previous patterns whereby benefits were already being made less generous prior to 2010, and then they became even less generous afterwards. So again, this is not just a story of a thermostatic response to a previously left of center government. So having talked about what I think doesn't explain it, let's move on, start talking about what does explain it. And the first thing I'm going to have to talk about in order to get there is what has happened to public opinion over that period. And I'm showing you here one long run measure of public opinion. And this is from the British Social Attitude Survey, which is an amazing long run source of data on what the British public thinks about the welfare system. What you see in this chart going back from the mid 1980s up to 2019 when the book's analysis ends, and I'm going to show you more recent data later, but for now, 2019, this shows you the percent of people who in response to a survey question were willing to endorse the view that unemployment benefits are too high and discourage work. And there are two key things that I want you to take away from this chart and that matter for that why argument that the book puts forward. The first is that the arrival of the coalition uh, government led by the Conservatives in 2010 coincided remarkably with the peak in the unpopularity of the benefits system. The uh, late, 19, late 2000s and the early 2010s were the peak level of unpopularity for the benefits system. So the Conservatives came to government with a system that was widely disliked, distrusted uh, by the British public, and those of you who were around at that time might remember programs like Benefit Street or even Little Britain that really denigrated working class people and people living on the benefit system. There was a, a wider climate, not just amongst politicians, but also the media uh, of that, which I'm going to talk about in a second. And what that did was it left the British public very opposed to the welfare system. And that meant that the, the conservative led governments crucially benefited from very, very lucky timing in terms of when they were able to introduce their changes because they arrived at the peak unpopularity. The second thing to notice is what happened from the early 1990s to the late 2010s. And over that period, we see a very large and very sustained rise in the unpopularity of the welfare system from a system that was relatively popular in the late 1980s and early 90s. We got to one that was very unpopular in the late 2000s 
And this was the period of new labor um, under Tony Blair. And so a key message of the book is that in order to understand how we got to 2010, we need to go back to the 1990s, which was the era of on the right here, Britpop and Noel Gallagher and Oasis, but more crucially on the left here, the era of Tony Blair and the new Labour Party. Tony Blair became Labour leader in 94 and became Prime Minister in 97. And so it's that period that set Britain's trajectory towards a very unpopular welfare system. And it's that period actually, uh, that's his historical period, that I think um, must be invoked in order to explain how we got to where we are today. And I'm going to explain um, uh, how, we, uh, how and why it did that. Crucial to know is that Labour carried out a series of reforms building on the Conservative-led reforms before them, the introduction of job seekers allowance, they increased conditionality, they increased sanctioning and monitoring, um, and so on and so forth. But more important than what happened to policy over the period was what happened to what the uh, politicians said over the period, their discourse. And that is um, a, a very key feature of my arguments and of the book. So having talked about public opinion and a bit about politics, I'm now going to talk about discourse. And I'm going to talk about what this chart shows you, which is perhaps the, the most important chart in the book and the most important chart, I think, for understanding what's happened to British benefits policy. What this um, shows you is the product of um, so-called big data techniques applied to a corpus of millions of speeches. In fact, every speech made about the welfare system from the mid-1980s to the late 2010s in the House of Commons. And the y-axis here shows you the percent of time that should be multiplied by 100, 0.4 there actually means 40%. It shows you the percent of time that politicians from different parties spent using different types of arguments about the welfare system as measured by these computational techniques of big data, which I'm not going to go into now, but that I can talk about later if people are interested. The left-hand chart here shows you the percent of time that the party spent essentially talking about the benefit system in positive terms, what I call poverty needs and rights discourse. This is discourse that emphasizes um, welfare as a human right, that emphasizes welfare as a means to tackle poverty, that emphasizes the deservingness of those in the system and how the system can be used to tackle poverty. And the way to read this is that if we go back to the, uh, for example, uh, year 1990, um, Labour uh, as a party was spending about half of its time in debates about welfare talking positively and the Conservative Party about uh, 25 to 30 percent of its time. And over the 1990s and 2000s, as new Labour um, were entrenched, those positive mentions of the welfare system uh, crashed basically down to zero. It was almost not talked about at all in positive terms during the 1990s and 2000s. Uh, and then post-2010, we see a divergence, and a divergence that gets particularly large when Jeremy Corbyn becomes Labour leader in 2015, where the Conservatives continue to talk in negative terms, and Labour, at least up until 2019, was talking more positively. Now, on the right-hand chart, we see the opposite, which is negative mentions of the welfare system. And here we see another example of what I call bipartisan convergence, where both parties converge to using the same type of discourse. But in this case, over the 1990s and 2000s, Labour converged towards the Conservatives and began to talk about welfare in just as negative terms as the Conservatives kind of always had done over the 80s and 90s. So what emerges here is a picture of the sort of mid to late 1990s to late 2000s as a crucial and really unusual period 
when both parties were talking very negatively and not at all positively about the welfare system, and both parties were saying the same thing and talking in the same way. There was a very negative uh, sort of discourse towards the system that was not counterbalanced by any positive discourse. Now, why does this matter for my arguments? The key thing is that um, what I argue in the book is that changes in uh, public opinion were driven by these changes in discourse. And to show you that, I'm gonna go back to the measure of public opinion that I showed you before on unemployment benefits. And I'm gonna use a trick called standardization to place this chart and the charts of discourse on the same scale so that we can compare the two. And let's have a look at that. And if we look at these two measures against each other, we can see that changes in the way that politicians talked about the benefit system, in this case from the Labour Party, and changes in public opinion were very, very closely linked. In fact, they evolve almost perfectly together over time. Over the 1990s and 2000s, public opinion and um, discourse changed almost simultaneously. And over the 2010s, we see a reversion in both. And the core argument that I make in the book is that this relationship is actually causal. And it's causal in the sense that what politicians said changed what voters thought. Now, this chart alone certainly doesn't show you that. It doesn't provide proof. It shows that there was a correlation between the two. In the book, I go through a very, very large amount of evidence from lots of different surveys, from experiments carried out on people, uh, lots of different types of analysis to prove that this was actually a causal relationship. And I'm not gonna go through all of that evidence today, but let me just highlight a couple of things that matter for the argument. One is that public opinion scholars like me actually increasingly don't think that public opinion as it's talked about in the media and by politicians really exists. Most members of the public don't have a, a strong and entrenched view of a particular issue. What they do have in their heads is a series of ideas or considerations that they could use to talk about or think about a policy. And those considerations or ideas can be brought to mind or brought forward by what politicians and the media say. And so when the public hear only negative arguments about the welfare system and no positive arguments, it's going to change what they think and what they say the pollsters in response. And it's that bipartisanship that really matters because wider research on opinion change from the field of political science shows us that it's precisely when there's bipartisan convergence it's precisely when that convergence is sustained over a long period. And it's also precisely when a party like Labour that was previously trusted on the issue of welfare changes its mind, that opinion change from the public is most likely to happen. So these are actually a kind of most likely set of circumstances under which mass opinion pain change would take place. And I'm just gonna show you um, before we move on um, that these changes were mirrored in what happened in the media. Because you might be thinking, well, the British public don't read what happens in Hansard. They don't really listen to what happens in Parliament. In fact, it does get widely reported in the news media. But crucially, those changes in um, discourse were mirrored very closely by similar changes in discourse in newspapers. So I look at the Daily Mail, the Sun, uh, the Telegraph and the Guardian, uh, the Times and the Guardian in the book. This is a chart uh, of uh, newspaper articles in the Times. And if you look at the right-hand chart, you can see sort of pro-poor coverage. This is our positive coverage of the welfare system. It follows a very similar trajectory to politicians. It plummeted over the 90s, was low in the 2000s, and then rebounded. And we see qualitatively, but not perfectly similar patterns in terms of anti-welfare words, which spiked uh, through the 1990s, actually declined a bit more than amongst politicians in the 2000s, but then rose again 
to be at a sort of a peak again around the time of the financial crisis. And as I said earlier, um, this discourse in the print media was mirrored by a wider set of discourses in, for example, um, the television coverage of the benefit system programs like Benefit Street. And so this wider set of changes fed through into what the public thought. In interest of time, I'm just going to skip through this slide and talk a little bit uh, about um, what politicians actually said and how this was linked to policy change. So just to remind ourselves of what this discourse sounded like, and it's quite extraordinary, I think, to read this today. This is what Gordon Brown, when he was chancellor, later and prime minister, said about the benefit system in 2000, as reported in the Daily Mail, Britain's right of center, one of Britain's main right center tabloids. It said, Brown, the fraudbuster, promised there will be no hiding place for benefit fraudsters. There are too many people claiming benefit fraudulently, too many people who think they can get away with it. Later on, it says the government source promised we're going to be ruthless our message to cheats and fraudsters is clear. The game is up. Our message to the decent, hardworking majority who live by the rules and pay by the Jews, pay their Jews is clear as well. We are on your side. This is very, very stark discourse that paints a kind of Manichaean uh, conflict between, on the one hand, a virtuous group of taxpayers or citizens, and on the other hand, an unvirtuous or cheating set of welfare claimants. And it produces a very, very clear dividing line between those groups. And this sort of rhetoric of benefit users as a kind of amoral rump was one that was continued throughout the 1990s. So this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, qualitative tone of discourse is one that was sustained um, throughout the 90s and 2000s. And it depicted, as I say, benefit claimants as a kind of deviant minority, as fraudulent, and it depicted them as responsible for their own poverty and unemployment it was depicted as a choice that they were not working hard enough, not trying hard enough, not meeting the conditions of their benefits uh, um, sort of regime. And therefore, uh, they needed to be controlled and monitored and sanctioned in the same way as they have been, but in a more strengthened way since 2010. And this is an example of what polit political scientists call policy feedback, where actually changes in the types of policies that were introduced policies that actually broke the link between, for example, uh, insurance-based unemployment and unemployment benefits, um, uh, reforms that broke the link between um, kind of uh, citizenship and benefits, but created a link between people's behavior and their right to receive um, benefits, created feedback effects on the way that those policies were talked about and the way that the public thought, because benefits became more temporary. They became something that was provided by taxpayers to claimants. They became conditional. They, be they became potentially fraudulent as a result. So there was a tight connection between the types of policy changes that Labour made, the discourse that Labour used to describe those policy changes, and ultimately the impact that that had on the British public. So that's the core part of the book's argument about how public opinion changed and how we got to where we were in 2010. And before I wrap up, let me just um, deal very quickly with a couple of questions that you might have at this point. So one question you might have at this point is, well, why on earth did Labour change its discourse so much in the 1990s if it wasn't changing it in response to public opinion? It, it wasn't, in my view, the fact that the British public became more hostile to benefits and then Labour followed. It was actually the exact opposite. 
And I'm going to disappoint you by saying that I don't have time to go through that argument in full um, today. You'll have to read the book if you want to get the full argument. I can talk about it in the Q&A. But suffice to say that a major part of the book is about answering this question and about providing an adequate answer to this a very reasonable challenge to the arguments I've put forward so far. The second thing you might be thinking, particularly if you uh, come perhaps from another European country, is you've talked about a British exceptionalism. I've made the argument that Britain was exceptional, but it has diverged from its neighbors. But many of the changes that were introduced to British benefits policy were also introduced in other European countries like Germany, Sweden, and Denmark um, over the 1990s and 2000s. Now that's a, a, a reasonable and largely correct characterization of policy change. But the crucial thing that was different about the UK was discourse. It's not a, a reasonable characterization of the way that discourse changed. There certainly was in those other countries some increase in anti-welfare rhetoric, but I actually devote a whole chapter of the book to comparing the manifestos of parties in Sweden, Denmark, the Netherlands and Germany to uh, the British Labour Party. And I show there that actually the changes in discourse that took place in Britain were much more sustained, much more bipartisan, much more long lasting and much more far reaching than the changes that took place in those uh, comparison countries. And the final question you might think is, well, you've talked all about the 1990s and 2000s. What does all of this have to do with the core question that we began this talk with? which was the why question of the post-2010 reforms. Why did we get to where we were? And I am going to spend a little bit of time talking about this and talking about the post-2010 period. So one way to think about the post-2010 period and one way in which it's often talked about is as a tale of two men. And I'm afraid it is just two men in this case. It's been a rather male-dominated decade in British politics. Um, the man on my left is Ian Duncan Smith, who was Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, responsible for the benefits system from 2010 to 2015. And it was Ian Duncan Smith who introduced the system of universal credit and was in charge of many of the welfare reforms. And uh, universal credit as initially introduced by Ian Duncan Smith was actually envisaged to be relatively generous and to not lead to the same cuts that were introduced. But I think there's an important element to Ian Duncan Smith that needs to be understood to try to explain what's happened since, which is a failure or difficulty to empathize or understand the lives of the poorest citizens. And in particular, a belief that, for example, a failure to find work is kind of an individual moral failing, and a moral failing that requires correcting at the level of individual behavior through the sanctioning system. So I think um, kind of Ian Duncan Smith's blind spots, or his inability perhaps to, to think about the way that people in poverty actually navigate the benefit system is part of the explanation for what's happened since 2010. Another part of the explanation is the man on the right, and that's George Osborne, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer over this period, responsible for the austerity policies that led to very large cuts in British public spending. And in fact, those austerity policies fell um, to a particular extent on the benefits system. What actually happened was that the universal credit system introduced by Endung Smith on the left, initially envisaged to be quite generous, um, was um, kind of uh, attacked by George Osborne and the Treasury in order to uh, produce savings, which led to the final program being much less generous than was actually envisaged. And in fact, Ian Duncan Smith resigned in protest in 2015, saying that even his own government had gone too far in reducing the generosity of the welfare system. Now, I think both of these explanations are important, but I think that they're also uh, incomplete 
as explanations for what's happened since 2010, because they don't tell us what created the moral climate, the climate in which the taboo that I talked about earlier on hurting the lives of the poorest through benefit cuts was lifted. Uh, it doesn't explain why it was politically feasible for such an unprecedented and large scale and regressive set of changes to be introduced and for those changes to be received well by the British public. And it also doesn't explain uh, why Britain diverged so much from other similar countries, because other similar countries were also facing budgetary pressures. Other similar countries were also led by centre-right governments who probably have the same lack of empathy or understanding of the lives of the poor. And so I think in order to understand what's happened since 2010, we must account for the fact that the public was extremely hostile to the benefits system and that that um, loosening of the constraint placed on politicians by public opinion was the key explanatory factor that led to these changes since 2010. And that's why those changes beforehand in the way that politicians spoke and the way that public thought uh, are so crucial for my argument about how we got to where we are today. And in the last five minutes, let me talk about the situation today and where I think this leaves us with benefits policy. And having given you a fairly depressing picture so far, I'm going to uh, leave you on a note of some uh, cautious optimism by sharing a chart from um, a chapter that I recently wrote with some co-authors for the 40th anniversary report of the British Social Attitude Survey. This shows you uh, a chart from that chapter and it shows you what's happened to so-called deservingness perceptions over a long period of time. And the, um, uh, the purple line here shows you the percent of people in surveys who say that they uh, uh, disagree that most people who get social security don't really deserve any help. And so we can see that on this measure, sympathy for or understanding of people using benefits by 2022, which is the end of his chart, was actually at the highest level it's been since the early 1990s. And that's partly because people have noticed what's happened to the system and noticed what's happened to poverty. If we look from the same report at what's happened to spending preferences, we see some change, but not as much change as on deservingness. So for example, the green line here shows you the percent of people saying the government should spend more money on benefits, even if it leads to higher taxes. And we can see that there's been a, a somewhat substantial uptick in that measure since the late 2000s low, but it hasn't rebounded as much to the uh, 1980s and 90s level. And where does this leave us then going forward? I think that what my research shows, what this book shows, and what the experience of the last decade shows is that we need to develop a new moral language to talk about the welfare system. We need to move beyond a kind of rhetorical paradigm that welfare is about rewarding the virtuous and about punishing those who fail uh, morally to live up to their uh, requirements. But a key message of the book is that that isn't just about politicians changing the way we talk. It's about how we create the conditions under which that kind of language can emerge and can thrive and can be sustained. And in the long run, that requires, in my view, smart policy changes that make it easier for politicians to engage in more positive rhetoric, that don't draw dividing lines between those who receive and those who claim that don't place so many conditions on people who at some point are going to be unable to meet some of them and can end up in the media being covered as a result. And so we need to think about how we can make the wealth benefit system not just more generous, but more politically sustainable in the long run, so that it creates a set of conditions 
under which that new moral language can emerge. And in the last chapter of the book, I provide a detailed policy blueprint for where I think we should go in order to get there. And in the last two minutes, I will just leave you with a very brief preview of what I think that should look like. What I call this in the book is a system that should give something for everyone, not something for nothing. The idea of something for nothing is a key sort of center-right talking point about the benefit system, the claim that people are being handed out benefits while doing nothing in return. I think a politically sustainable benefit system, a system that creates that new moral language, is a system where um, universality needs to be built into the system to some degree. All citizens need to receive something from the benefit system in a way that they do to a much greater extent in Scandinavian countries, for example. Um, we need to draw more groups into, I think, the system of uh, uh, national insurance. I would like to see a system where national insurance is extended to people claiming childcare, for people doing elderly care, for people doing retraining, so that more and more citizens are drawn into a system that they're using and that they feel they own. At the moment, national insurance is a system that's largely just used for unemployed people who are a small percentage of the population and who as a result are walled off rhetorically and literally from the rest of society. And it's that wall, I think, that needs to be broken down. And the final thing that I think needs to change is that the system needs to be rebuilt around the idea of investment, investment in the skills of citizens, in the capabilities of citizens, and in producing citizens who can and are enabled to uh, sort of uh, contribute back to society productively. And it's through that productive uh, capacity, I think, that we can start to build that new moral language that I think is needed in order to create a sustainable benefit system um, for the next decade and beyond. So thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to your questions. Thank you for listening. Great. Thank you so much, Tom, for this um, very interesting talk. Um, we have a couple of questions uh, which I will put to you, and um, I would like to start with. Um, so universal basic income has been highlighted across like many different countries as a possible um, alternative solution. Do you think this would be a solution for the problems that you highlight in your book? So I kind of began the book, I think, as kind of, um, how should I put it, like universal benefit income curious. And I think I ended the book deeply skeptical about universal basic income as a solution. Now, universal basic income, for those that don't know, is the idea of providing an unconditional cash transfer to all citizens as a right. The most generous notions of that suggest it should be enough that you can live on it without um, uh, uh, sort of um, needing to any work. And um, I think it's useful as a thought experiment. It tells us some of the features of what a good benefit system should look like. It should be possible, I think, to take time off to retrain in a world where things like automation are going to lead to very big changes in labor markets, where we're going to live a lot longer and we're probably going to have multiple careers, where we're going to have um, elderly relatives to look after and so on. So those are features that should be in a good benefit system, but we don't need uh, universal basic income to have them. We already have the capability to introduce those sorts of policies. So the first thing to say is that I think many of the good ideas and elements of UBI are things that we can already do uh, and we can just do them better. But the second and more important thing is that I think um, I can't think of a system like a true UBI system that is more likely to lead to the same kind of negative dynamics that we've seen so far. Because to my mind, the headlines kind of write themselves. Why are these lazy citizens sitting around doing nothing while I pay my taxes and go to work and they sit around on their UBI doing nothing? 
and in fact, um, sort of focus group evidence and other forms of survey evidence show that actually um, many citizens, when asked, do feel that that element of UBI is unfair. And so I think UBI is not a politically sustainable system in the way that I talk about it in the book, and I've talked about it today. It's a system that I think is in great danger of unraveling uh, uh, over time. And so I think we need to be smarter and better, learn some of the lessons from UBI, but without going all the way. Great, thanks very much. Um... Also, um, given that uh, the election is due to, or like next general election is due to happen in the next 12 to 14 months or so, um, what do you think we can expect from a Keir Starmer-led Labour government in terms of changes to benefit policy? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So I think, I think the first thing to say is based on the sort of public opinion charts I showed you towards the end, I think there is political space for a different kind of argument, a different kind of policy that's a bit more sympathetic to welfare users than in the past. I think it's clear that the public are willing to listen to that more than they were. And so there's some signs of that, like the campaigns by the footballer Marcus Rashford on poverty that actually got very positive coverage and were received well by the public. So the public are, um, I think, at least more willing to listen than they were in the past. And uh, But I think the main way I would characterize the public is more ambivalent than they were 10 years ago. If 10 years ago the public were really opposed to the benefit system, today I think they feel more ambivalently. I think they feel more sympathetic to its users, but they're not particularly keen on um, the government raising taxes and spending more tax money on benefits. So I think there is political space for a change, but it needs to be done carefully. But what's interesting is that it's very unclear what Starmer and his team think about benefits policy, and there have been some quite conflicting signals. So on the one hand, several of Starmer's front bench have, for example, condemned the two-child limit, which is a huge driver of child poverty in the UK, called it immoral. And then more recently, Keir Starmer said that they have no plans to scrap the two-child limit. Uh, and generally speaking, what Labour seem to be doing is trying to keep as quiet as possible about the benefit system and not talk about it. I think partly because they feel that it's kind of dangerous um, territory for them. And actually, to me, that highlights kind of the key argument of the book, which is that we don't currently have a benefit system where it's easy for a party like Labour to actually make those morally virtuous arguments that I think they need to start making. And so I think it's easy to criticise Labour, but I think it's at least somewhat understandable why they're doing what they're doing. Um, but I think it's a, a kind of dangerous um, territory for Labour because I, I worry that in not countering what is starting to be um, a, a much more negative set of rhetoric from the Conservatives, that they may be sowing the seeds for the same long-run changes in public opinion that happened before. You know, to, I think it was today or yesterday, we had Jacob Rees-Mogg going on TV saying that, you know, um, the benefit system shouldn't be a lifestyle you know, actually, uh, two out of five people using universal credit are in work, and many of the rest of people in universal credits are ruled ineligible to work by the government themselves because of disabilities. So that's not only a fairly offensive statement, but actually a factually inaccurate one as well. But Labour are not countering that. And so I worry very much about whether Labour might be uh, you know, making the same mistake again. And I think it's a symptom of a kind of um, a wider unwillingness on the centre left to think tactically or long term about what they want to do over the next decade or so. I think they're very focused on the current election, not focused on the future. I think what they should be doing is talking about the system as one of investment. They should be saying, we're underinvesting in people who, if they were given the help they needed, could be productive, could work hard, would contribute. But at the moment, you know, we have the lowest amount of support for the unemployed in Western Europe. 
Um, we have a health system that's failing and the failures of the health system actually are feeding through into the benefit system uh, because people are in poor health, they're unable to work, they're moving on to disability benefits. So it's to me, if I was a special advisor to Labour, and I'm sure I never will be after making this presentation, but if I was, I would say, look, there's, there's an investment story, there's a health story that can be used to both critique um, concurrent conservative policy and paint the system in a bit more of a positive light and start to use that kind of moral language that I think needs to be used. But at the moment, my guess is as good as yours in some ways uh, as to where Starmer's government, if elected, would go once in, in, in power. Great, thank you. I'll uh, put a question to you from um, on the chat. So from uh, Francis, um, who says, you said not much has happened since 2020, but incapacity benefit uptake has expanded. Um, so uh, massively since that time, and would um, would that be a pressure valve on unemployment benefits as well? So that's yeah, that's that's a good point. So, so to clarify, what, what I meant was that there haven't been big changes in kind of policies since 2020. That doesn't mean, uh, as the uh, question rightly says, but there haven't been big changes in what's actually happened. It's absolutely right that there's been a big rise in people using incapacity benefits. Uh, research shows that that's partly linked to increased NHS waiting lists. Uh, it's also um, very largely a story of mental health as well and um, cuts lack of access to mental health services. Um, so it, it, there is a, a, a kind of um, rising crisis of underemployment of people who probably with the right help and with the right uh, with access to the right health care could active, could actually be productively employed. And so I, I think the question is, is well put that there is a missed opportunity here, which kind of comes back to what I said in my response about Starmer, but actually that's that's both an opportunity for the benefit system and it's a wider critique of what's happened since and so i i, I i'm one of those people now that start shouting at the tv when i hear a labor politician and just wish they would start making that argument because it's absolutely right there's been a huge and i think very damaging rise in the use of incapacity benefit not by the way by people who are so lazy that they don't want to work but largely people who are unable to work because they they can't access the right help and that's that's not a political point that's that's a point that's backed up by by clear research Great. Um, there, one, there's another question that asked, like, to what extent the financial crisis uh, played a role in these significant changes in attitude? So, I mean, have people like ahead of this 2010 election, like, really, I mean, we know that Labour has been blamed for a lot of the, the kind of like increased um, deficit, but how has that affected attitudes relative to welfare policy? Mm. So I, I actually don't think that the financial crisis itself had a big impact on um, attitudes. And that's mainly because attitudes had largely already changed by the time the financial crisis arrived. So actually, the big change was kind of over the 1995 or so to about 2008-9 period. And, it, and they, they didn't really evolve that much more over the 2008 to 13 period. It was roughly stable. It was There was high opposition, but the opposition was fairly stable. So there isn't strong evidence that during the financial crisis itself, attitudes became more negative. The way I think the financial crisis did matter is that it enabled conservative politicians to rhetorically link um, what were already popular changes in benefits policy to a wider austerity agenda that was also popular with the public. So they said, not only are we being responsible by cutting public spending, but we're cutting it in an area that you don't like very much and uh, and you want to see cuts in. So I think the financial crisis was important indirectly, not in shaping attitudes, but in shaping the kinds of arguments or the kind of strategies that conservative politicians were able to use. 
yeah so created like the environment in which they could actually push through exactly so i think it was a contributing factor but maybe not the main causal factor if you like um Good. So um, another question, I mean, you mentioned that you uh, would be happy to talk more about the techniques that you use. So could you maybe talk a little bit more about how you use these like millions of speeches or discourse as quantitative data? Because you discovered topic in these like documents. Could you maybe talk a little bit about how you do that? Sure. Yeah. So um, the main way in which this is done and the, and the way, roughly speaking, that it's done in my work is, is, is to is to take these speeches and then to turn them into counts of words. And so um, it's a so-called bag of words approach. Uh, it's actually a, an approach that's increasingly becoming less popular thanks to the rise of so-called word embeddings, uh, which actually un underlie chat GPT, but, but let's not talk about that. Um, the, the way it's done in, in my research, largely speaking, is to count words. So one way of thinking about it is that um, welfare will be scored or discourse on welfare will be scored as um, more negative, the more that negative words are used to describe the system, and more positive, the more that positive words are used to describe the system. Um, there's a very specific technique I use in the main part of the paper in the uh, book, sorry, and was used to produce that chart, which is called um, topic modeling. And that actually, what it actually does is break down speech into a set of topics and then counts how often those topics are used. And I looked at negative and positive topics over time. I don't think I have time to explain topic models in three minutes. It's actually pretty hard to describe even in a, in a 90 minute lecture, so I won't try. But, but the underlying idea is essentially one of counting words. And that may sound very naive, it may sound simple, um, but actually, you know, as I teach my undergraduates in my course on quantitative text analysis, it works surprisingly well in most applications and really does actually tell you a lot. And, and, and crucially also, you know, it didn't, my analysis didn't stop at um, just counting words. It also involves a deep reading of the speeches and a deep analysis of the speeches themselves. <clears throat> and that deep reading analysis of the speeches qualitatively uncovers the same patterns and, and forms an important part of the book as well. So it's in many ways a mixed methods book, but but, but one that's uh, very clearly informed by these techniques of big data. Amazing, really interesting. Um, there are no more questions. Um, I there are just two uh com like a couple of comments saying how fascinating the talk um the your talk was. Um, if there are no more questions, I think um we can close this lunch hour lecture. Um, thank you so much, Tom, for your really interesting presentation and talking to us about your book and um and about how you will not become a an advisor to either Labour or the Conservative Party. And um, yeah, I would just like to point out for, um, for uh, viewers right now that there will be another, um, another lunch hour lecture which takes place on World Mental Health Day on the 10th of October on adolescent mental health, um, the role of academic pressure, and that will be uh, with Dr. Marie Mueller. Um, Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for everyone who uh, joined us online. And um, I hope you have a great rest of the day, everyone. And yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Julia. Thanks, everyone.